and Stevie. Thanks for tuning in to episode two. I'm going to kick off this week's show with a disclaimer. The case in this episode is by far the most mysterious of the series, and the truth of what actually happened is still far from being surfaced. Everything I present to you in this episode has been written or claimed by others closer to the situation, and all I've done is put the pieces together. As always, I'll put the resources on the Facebook page once the show goes live. Hope you enjoy. was a big year for football. It was the year that it got its chance to crack its final frontier, America. The beautiful game had finally met the big show. The USA had flirted with football, or soccer on several occasions before. But this was the first time that the country got to see what all the fuss was about firsthand. An opportunity for it to finally compete with the national pastime, baseball, and to give other sports like basketball, ice hockey, and American football a run for their money. This was the World Cup, the biggest sporting competition there is, and it was shaping up to be a fantastic tournament. England were missing, sure, but the rest of the big boys were there, and they were all raring to go. And mixing it with the favourites were a host of nations and players who would go on to become cult heroes. And mixing it with the favourites were a host of nations and players who would go on to become cult heroes. Bulgaria and the tempestuous genius of Haristo Stoichkov, Romania and the Maradona of the Carpathians, Georgie Hadji, and even the USA's own ginger-bearded wonder, Alexi Lalas, all firmly etched themselves into the hearts and minds of football fans everywhere. And in amongst those names was a talented side making their first appearance at a World Cup. After years of trying, Nigeria had finally arrived at the top table. And what's more, they were arriving in form. Earlier in the year, they'd been crowned African Nations champions, beating Zambia 2-1 in a frantic final held at the Stade El Menza in Tunis. And they had a squad that could really do some damage. Youngsters Finidi George and Victor Ikpiba were being tipped for big futures, as was teenager Sunday Elise. Striker Daniel Amakachi knew this would be his big chance to secure a move to a top European league. Norwich City's Efren Okoku was a household name and was leading the front line. And he was leading that front line alongside the rangy forward and the prolific Rashidi Yakini. Despite being 30 at the time, The striker had proven his goal-scoring credentials and was far and away the Super Eagles' most potent threat. This was a huge opportunity for the player and the country to make their mark on the game. But nobody was to know that this would be Yakini's apex mountain and that a hard-fought career and life would come to an end in bizarre and mysterious circumstances. The time is approaching midnight. A full moon can be seen from the window and it's the perfect night for tales of woe and true crime. This week, tough upbringings, bags full of golf, and the suspected greed of a family make up the show. This is the dead ball situation. It 
It's not uncommon for footballers to come from disadvantaged backgrounds or endure tough upbringings. Most of the players we've loved over the years have had to claw their way out of poverty to be given a chance at making it. Rashidi Yakini knew all about that battle. Having lost his father at the age of six, he was sent to go and live with an uncle. But for years, the young Yakini suffered at the hands of this brutish and abusive uncle, who would frequently chain the young boy up and beat him if he ever stepped out of line. Rashidi sought comfort in the radio his late father had left him, and whiled away the hours he was left tied in chains, listening to football matches. The radio proved a comfort for him, and kept him connected to his old man and the game that he was quickly beginning to love. And when he was ten years old, his uncle smashed this radio during a particularly violent outburst. The youngster decided he'd had enough, and he made a break for it. He hid, and when the heat had died down, he began working at a local football club. He'd earn his keep by cleaning boots and doing odd jobs for the senior pros, and the coins that he would earn would go towards food and temporary places to crash. Like hell was he going back home, or to his mother's? He figured that she'd just be as likely to sell him out to his uncle again. As the years went by, he got better on the pitch too, and proved an able goalscorer. However, when the time came for him to put those same senior pros to the test in training, they bullied him. All of a sudden, that goodwill from just a few years before, when they took him on as an errand boy, was gone. But after he left UNTL Kaduna, he joined Shooting Stars and managed to prove his worth by hitting an impressive 45 goals in 53 appearances. Three years passed. Seeking a fresh start away from his troubled youth, he decided to make the move to Africa Sports in the Côte d'Ivoire in 1987. By this point, he was already a Nigerian international and had featured at an Olympic Games. And he was making a name for himself as an up-and-coming goalscorer. But while things were going his way on the pitch, the same could hardly be said away from it. His trust issues took another huge knock when he allowed a friend to crash at his place in Abidjan. Having looked after himself for so long, he'd taken to hiding his cash in his bedroom. But one day when he came back from training, he noticed that all his money had gone. He asked his friend if he knew anything about it, but of course he didn't. A few days later, that same friend turned up with a brand new car. Rashidi knew what was what, and he threw him out immediately and told him never to come back. There was further turmoil when his marriage crumbled. The couple had been together for only three months, but had returned separately from their honeymoon. Something about an ex-boyfriend. Away from the pitch, he retreated further within himself. He didn't want anyone to bother him. On the pitch, though, his career was going from strength to strength. In 1990, he finally earned his move to Europe, signing for Portuguese side Vitória Setubal. Over the next four years, he would prove to be a potent goalscorer for the club. While trophies were evasive, he still managed to score 90 goals in 114 games. Interest from the big three, Porto, Benfica and Sporting, came and went but he was proving that he was able to cut it at a higher level in Europe. Some players have to wait for success to come their way. As 1994 began, he was already 30 years old and and was well established as the Super Eagles' main man. He'd just finished the 93-94 season as the Portuguese league's top scorer with 21 goals and in March, he travelled with the national team to Tunisia for the African Cup of Nations. He began the tournament well, grabbing two goals and a 3-0 win over Gabon before adding another two in the quarters against Zaire. He scored again in the semis, 
Leveling the score at 2 all in an encounter with the Cote d'Ivoire before stepping up to score the winning penalty in a 4-2 shootout. He failed to hit the target in the final, but it didn't matter. Nigeria ran out 2-1 winners against Zambia, and he picked up the golden boot with five goals, just in time for the World Cup that summer. Nigeria had been placed in a tough group with Argentina, Bulgaria and Greece, but they got off to the best possible start. At the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, he opened the scoring in a 3-0 rout over Stoichkov's Bulgaria, racing onto the end of a Finidi George low cross to tap in from close range. Forward, just outside the area. Good piece of defending by Kuchev. Uh, he didn't get in, but now they've got in. Yakini coming for the cross. He celebrated by running into the goal and clinching the net while screaming at the top of his lungs. His face contorted with passion and elation. A realisation of a lifetime of dreams and the culmination of solid determination. All his emotions came pouring out of him and it became one of the iconic images of the tournament. And what's more, Nigeria had arrived. They lost the next game to Argentina 2-1 but they beat the Greeks 2-0 to go top of the group. In the round of 16, they came up against the heavily fancied Italy. They took the lead midway through the first half, but an inspired Roberto Baggio took the game to extra time with a miraculous goal in the 88th minute. He added another in extra time, which proved to be the winner from the penalty spot. If only he knew. Yakini only managed to score once at the World Cup, but it had been a good year for him professionally. Over the summer, he was rewarded with a move to Greek giants Olympiakos for almost £3 The rumour was that the move would earn the striker 100k a year and that jealousy over his wage packet spread through the rest of the Nigeria squad. If you watch the footage of his goal against Bulgaria, you'll see it takes his teammates a while to join him. Something to chew on. But the hangover from his national team duty, coupled with his desire to cut a solitary figure, meant his stay in Volos was short-lived. He managed just two goals in four games and was moved on shortly after due to bust-ups with his teammates and coaches. They just didn't get him. From there, his career began to unravel. He spent a season in Spain with Sporting Hion. He failed to make much of an impact there, bar one game that saw him score twice to dismantle Fabio Capello's Real Madrid, before he returned to Setubal. His second stay there was unassuming. A brief reprieve with FC Zurich in Switzerland meant he was able to make the cut for the World Cup in 1998. It was time to hang up his boots at international level. There'd been a disagreement with the Nigerian FA, who still hadn't come good on the promise to buy him a house after the World Cup in 94. However, in his final game, in a substitute appearance against Denmark in the last 16 of the 98 World Cup, the fans turned. He was introduced in the 65th minute, but he could do nothing to stop the Danes from running out 4-1 winners. The result sent Nigeria home. And the fans jeered Yakini, booed his every touch. Instead of receiving the hero's send-off he actually deserved, he was treated like a villain. It didn't matter that he was his country's record goalscorer, with 37 goals in 58 games, which is a record that still stands. The noise stuck with him, something which teammate Sunday Elise believes haunted him for the rest of his life. Yakini felt betrayed, and this haunted him till his death, Elise wrote. How could one give so much and receive so little from your own kind, he asked. He spent the rest of his career journeying through the Middle East and Africa, finally retiring in 2005, 
Many felt that he only continued playing for so long to prolong the inevitable. Most players, especially those of such high stature, can do whatever they want when they retire, but not Yakini. He withdrew from the game. He spurned the chance to go into management or become an agent and instead looked into business ventures to invest in. Having spent the majority of his career being careful with his money, he decided he'd go into business with his friend and confidant, a man known only as Ibrahim. Ibrahim owned a bureau de change in Ibadan, but as well as trading in foreign exchange, he was also heavily involved in the jewellery trade, and Yakini was buying in at the ground floor. Yakini liquidated his savings and turned it into cash to hand over to Ibrahim. But just as things were looking up, they were about to take another sour turn. On the day they were due to make the deposit, Yakini and Ibrahim travelled to the central bank in Ibadan. But on the way there, they were ambushed by bandits who'd been tipped off to the transaction. They gunned Ibrahim down and made off with the majority of the loot. Once again, Yakini's life suffered a major setback. The loss of his friend and his money sent him into a massive nosedive. Bit by bit, he began closing himself off to the outside world. He owned and lived in a large gated development on the outskirts of Ibadan, but slowly he evicted his tenants till he was the only one left. Well, him and a flock of peacocks that patrolled the grounds. What he had left of his money, he gave away to friends or lent to other people. He refused to give interviews and his family began to worry about his mental state. His car fell into a state of disrepair to the point where it was almost embarrassing. He would walk aimlessly around the town in shabby clothes, always in shorts, everybody noted. And on one occasion, he was spotted at the side of the road near the town's fruit market, just taking a shit. He'd been prone to bouts of depression in the past, but this was on another level. The family who'd once palmed him off to an abusive uncle was suddenly interested in his life again. Some believed because they wanted what was left of his money. But those who had stuck by him believed that what had been taken as mental illness was just a severe desire to be left alone in a life that had dealt so many knocks. Not long before he died, he discovered that he had a daughter. She lived in London with her mother and flew out to Nigeria to meet him and some of her extended family. She described him as being in good humour during her trip. They'd take long walks together to make up for lost time for not knowing each other. She said he was a gentle and jovial soul and that everybody who knew him would stop and say hello. She discovered that he loved African movies and crime TV shows. He was a huge CSI fan. His friend, the journalist Sagan Odegbami, went further and claimed that Yakini, who having earlier rejected the chance to take up an ambassadorial role with the Nigerian FA, now wanted to return to the game. He wanted to coach the kids who'd had nothing just like him. He started training again at the Awololo Stadium to get himself back in shape and blow away the cobwebs. This was a man with plans. But his family had other ideas. One night, when he'd finished training, he was getting ready and getting back into his car when a van of members of his family pulled up and jumped out to grab him. They shackled his hands and feet and dragged him into the back of the van. Witnesses said they could see him bleeding and that they heard him calling for help. But nobody did enough to act. This was the last time he was seen alive by the public. The story goes is that he was kept captive for weeks, but what happened to him whilst there remains a mystery. Reports have ranged from him being left chained to a bed and left to die, to him being poisoned and worked over by a crooked witch doctor while he was chained to the floor. 
Either way, it seems like it involved chains. His daughter in London tried calling, but he wasn't picking up his phone. She didn't think for a second that he was in any danger. But just as she did begin to fear the worst, an aunt confirmed that Rashida Yakini, her father, was dead. He was just 48 years old. Affairs were taken care of quickly, too quickly. His funeral took place that same week. There's an incredibly bleak video on YouTube detailing the day. He was laid to rest in a hole next to the house and his grave was filled with concrete. There was no death certificate, but the official cause of death was ruled as cardiac shock, whatever that means. A friend of the striker, Jibril Mohammed, scorned Yakini's mother for not showing more remorse and warned her against giving more TV interviews while showing such little regret. I thought there was something fishy because of her reaction, he said. She refused to tell me about the traditional home. She refused to tell anyone that. She just kept saying he died and that's all. Something wasn't right. A week later, the family threw a meal after they'd been awarded the rest of his estate, but they spent the majority of the time arguing over who got what. Rashida Yakini had been prone to bouts of depression and self-imposed isolation. But those who knew him best denied that he suffered from bipolar disorder, or any other psychiatric condition for that matter. Could his family really have killed him for his money? He'd suffered a lot during his life, and it's not surprising to understand why he isolated himself so often. But he was a man who gave joy to so many people, who elevated a country, and left a lasting legacy that anybody would be proud of. sad end to a fascinating life. He was certainly a man of mystery, but you can see why he had so many trust issues. His reclusiveness meant that he was a tough person to know, with so many different accounts of his mental state being portrayed. To this day, he's still the Nigerian national team's top goalscorer, but ask most people to name him, and chances are they won't be able to. He's left a legacy alright, but it's tragic that not enough people are aware of it. While researching the show, it was hard not to draw up questions about his family. The articles I found didn't really specify who was who. Were the family that his daughter met when she came over to Nigeria to meet him the same that snatched him? It's hard to say. And what was his mother's deal? She certainly didn't want to know him when he was a child, but she came crawling back once there was money involved. What actually happened to him in his last days aren't likely to ever be known. His family claimed that they were helping him, taking him in for his own good. But he can certainly be forgiven for not thinking that they had his best interests at heart, given the way he'd been treated. Well, thank you for turning out for episode two. If you liked what you heard, please do leave a rating and a review on whatever platform you've listened to, because it really does help us reach a larger audience. As for platforms, we're now across the board. We're on iTunes, we're on SoundCloud, we're on Spotify, we're on Acast. I think we're on iHeartRadio, but I'm not sure. I'll have to check. But we're also on Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash the dead ball situation. 
I've now created a little page where I'm going to put all the links and all the resources. Uh, it's a Tumblr because I don't really have the time or the inclination to set up a proper website. I don't really want to pay for it either. Call me cheap, if you will. Um, but I'll put a link to that once the show goes live. And thank you once again for turning out. Uh, we'll be back next Wednesday with episode three, where we'll be talking about the Brazilian goalkeeper, Bruno. Yeah, 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 yeah.